Carbon equity is a climate venture capital and private equity fund investing platform that enables retail investors to invest in breakthrough climate solutions through the world's best professional climate investors. Typically, these funds are not accessible. You need at least 5 million euros. You need a ton of experience. So what Carbon Equity does is we take away all those hurdles, enabling low minimum access to diversified climate, venture capital, and private equity fund investments, which helps you put your money to work with actual true impact. Welcome to the Entrepreneurs for Impact podcast. My name is Chris Wedding. As a former environmental private equity investor, four times founder, climate tech CEO, coach, and professor, I launched this podcast to share the entrepreneurial journey, practical tips, and hard-earned wisdom from CEOs and investors tackling climate change. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. This is the number one way that listeners can learn more about the climate CEOs and investors I interview. All right, let's get started. My guest today is Jacqueline Vanden Ende, co-founder and CEO at Carbon Equity, a fintech platform that seeks to power the world's most impactful climate technology solutions with retail capital. In under two years since Jacqueline and I met through OnDeck Climate Tech, they've mobilized over $120 million across 450 high net worth and mass affluent individuals to invest in professionally managed venture capital and private equity climate funds. As for background, Jacqueline lives in Amsterdam and has spent about half her career investing in companies and about half of her career building and leading companies. In this episode, we talked about the relative risk of investing in fund of funds versus individual angel investments, what mass affluent means and how a larger portion of this group's $177 trillion in assets can be mobilized for climate, how to motivate new hires to your team by focusing on what you can offer them, think flexibility, instead of what you can't, such as high salaries in, in the early days, a new interpretation of the golden rule, and no, this is not a class in religion, how to learn by doing through experiments instead of relying on Excel and PowerPoint too long, what she means by saying money as a means, their goal of moving a billion dollars into climate within five years, how to interpret the quote, this too shall pass during great and hard times as a founder, why she wakes up at 5 a.m., why the book Sixth Extinction was a I guess, in her words, maybe a, a holy shit, this climate stuff's really important moment, and lots more. Okay, maybe those are my words. Anyway, hope you enjoy it, and please remember, this is the fine print, folks, the contents of this podcast do not constitute investment advice. Instead, hang with me here, instead, by listening to this conversation, you are doing so only for education and entertainment, wink, wink, I hope. Purposes, again, not investment advice. All right. Hey, look, finally, please give Jacqueline and Carbon Equity a shout out on LinkedIn, Slack, or Twitter by sharing this podcast with your people. Thanks. All right. Jacqueline Vanden Ende, 
co-founder and CEO of Carbon Equity. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, so uh, listeners can't see that we're both smiling really big because I wasn't quite sure how well I, sa- I said your your last name. We practiced a few times, but anyway, maybe I didn't butcher it uh, too badly. It was perfect. 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 <laughs> so for, for listeners, this is a fun two-year circle of sorts where Jacqueline and I met. It was through OnDeck, I believe, right? Yes, we met yeah. at OnDeck. Yeah. So OnDeck, Climate Tech, maybe Cohort 2 or something. And I think we were, there, were, there weren't a ton of folks focused on either coming from or going to the finance side of climate tax. I think we, we got along, you know, partly for that reason, maybe partly for working in Asia, some too as well. Anyway, it's nice to come back together in this format and to tell listeners that in that time, less than two years, carbon equity has gone from a good idea to $120 million mobilized across 450 plus high net worth or mass affluent asterisks there to be defined for climate tech, right? Getting getting people into VC funds, right? Where before it was pretty hard to get the kind of access, right? Is that is that the right the right story? Yeah. No, that's exactly the right story. Yes. That's perfect. And and folks will pick up a slight accent from you so you're from and living in Amsterdam, yeah? Yes, correct. Yes. Awesome. Awesome. Do you hear my Dutch accent? <laughs> I think I do. It's a compliment, to be clear, not anything else. <laughs> well, hey, let, let's just start with how did you grow from, you know, a good idea to 120 million plus in less than two years? A lot of folks are asking themselves that question right now. Well, the first thing was to get started. I think as a budding entrepreneur, the first big challenge is to start and to get over the out of the idea phase and into execution phase. So we really started with a experiment. So often when entrepreneurs start, the question is, how do I validate that there is an interest for what I do? And we decided to do that with a pilot project, just basically launch a single fund and sell it. That's the number one thing you need to do to prove your point that your business is viable, sell it. And so we started off securing commitment in the 2150 Urban Tech Sustainability Fund. It's a really cool European fund, which is focused on climate solutions in the built environment. And then, uh, so we wiggled ourselves in, got to invest, I think, $5 million at the time. And then we just started calling on our network, uh, so seeing who wanted to invest in this fund. And to that surprise, I actually managed to fill the fund allocation, I think, in less than three weeks. So... That was like way more than, way faster than we expected. And step two, though, was to start building the team. I think something that we did very well in carbon equity, which is a lesson I learned early on in my career building companies, is we hired the very best people we could find. Super experienced people with a strong network and basically the type of hires that we couldn't afford yet, but convinced people to come on board. Uh, So that was a very important step. And then three, we raised a bit of seed funding, even if we had little more than a PowerPoint deck at the points, which was super helpful in yeah, being able to hire the right people, being able to do things professionally off the bat. So I think all of those things helped a lot in getting off the ground. Hmm. 
And how did you convince 2150 to give you this $5 million allocation to fill? Yeah, I'm trying to remember that. It was actually quite extraordinary because it was in their final close. So they were basically already overcommitted. <laughs> and somehow we still managed to get in. I think we leveraged our personal network. So we brought in a couple of angel investors, we from the starts. So again, from the moment that we had a PowerPoint deck. And when we were looking for angel investors to join our cap table, we really looked for a strategic value, people who could make valuable introductions, which is super important because I think also often a lot of like starting entrepreneurs are just looking for money, but the quality of money, the quality of angel investors like differs vastly between from one to another. So we made the right choice of hiring the right angels who then got us into contact with the managing partner of the 2150 VC fund. And then surprisingly, they actually liked our story. So we were a little bit hesitant in the beginning that funds would be okay with our democratized uh, venture capital or private equity fund investing platform because we're basically bringing in a bunch of well, not retail investors, but as you mentioned, mass affluence and high net worth investors, which is not the typical type of profile of people investing in their funds. But they really resonated with our vision of unlocking retail capital at scale to power climate solutions and creating more equitable ownership. And so the founding idea of carbon equity is that when people get to invest, they become invested in. And that's a message that very much resonated with the fund managers in wanting to work with us and giving us a chance to go out and raise this capital for them. Yeah, Roger that. Love it. The third point there was uh, you hired the best, even though you couldn't afford them, kind of. Yeah. But how did, how did you, like, what were some tactics to convince them slash reward them for joining? Yeah, good point. So the first super crucial hire was a guy called Vibe, and he had worked with Alpinvest. And Alpinvest is the indirect investment arm of the Carlyle Group, and it's one of the world's largest fund of fund investors. It's basically the Champions League of fund investing. And he spent over 11 years with Alpinvest and five years with JP Morgan. So he was really a dream guy. Our lawyer, actually, he was a friend of our lawyer. And our lawyer introduced him to us, which initially, I think he ignored our invitations. Like, it took us a while to actually get a meeting with him. But once we had that meeting, it didn't take long for him to jump on board. I think we really took him along in the vision of what we were looking to build. And I guess that's one of the skills I have is getting people somewhat enthusiastic about the, the visions for the company. And then we started lightweight. So we brought him on board for like two or three days a week, initially on an advisory contract with a heavily discounted fee from his regular rates. And he was willing to do that because... Well, he believed in the vision. He himself left Alpemess because he was tired of just making money and just had the pure uh, and single-minded profit focus of Alpemess. So he was looking for purpose. I think you can hire a lot of people who are looking for purpose and at, at non-market terms in that sense. And we really made him feel like a co-founder. And we actually even offered him to become a co-founder, which at the time he didn't opt to do. 
but he was so pivotal in shaping the company and bringing all of his expertise, but also bringing credibility because now we had somebody who had like huge track record as a fund investor, some literal gray hairs that we could show when we're talking to funds. So like he just elevated the level of what we're doing to in one go, he brought us the playbook of Alpenvest. So we had an institutional approach right from the start. We had a lot of credibility with both customers and the funds that we're investing in. So, and for him, it was a great way to have purpose, to still get paid at a reduced rate with tons of flexibility. So you also look for what matters to them. So for him, he wanted to spend more time with his family. He had worked his ass off 11 years and now it was time for his, uh, for his wife, you know, to, to take the front seat in her career. And so he wants more flexibility what we could offer that. So when looking for super talents, look at what you can offer rather than what you can't offer. You know, if I were a Twitter person, that would be a good tweet right there, but I'm not. But yeah, <laughs> like what you can offer versus what you can't offer. I like that. Yeah. Okay, so let's, we, we've kind of teased uh, listeners. Let's go back kind of, you know, 30,000 feet. What in the world is carbon equity? Yeah, <laughs> that's a good question. Carbon equity is a climate venture capital and private equity fund investing platform that enables retail investors, mass affluence and high net worth type investors to invest in breakthrough climate solutions, anything from zero carbon cement to electrified steel through the world's best or alongside the world's best professional climate investors. Now, for some subtext, <laughs> if that wasn't clear yet, and basically uh, we enable retail access to top climate uh, venture caps and private equity funds. So typically these funds, as you mentioned, are not accessible. You need at least 5 million euros. You need a ton of experience to select the right funds that are best in class in terms of climate impact and in terms of financial returns. And even if you have all of those things, then you would still need a network to actually worm yourself into such a fund. So what Carbon Equity does is we take away all those hurdles, enabling low minimum access to diversified climate venture capital and private equity fund investments, which helps you put your money to work with actual true impact rather than trading ESG stocks on the stock market, which has little to no actual climate impact. Got it. How did you arrive at this problem that you're now solving? Yeah. So the way that we got here, a little bit of background. I spent half my life as an investor, half as an entrepreneur. In 2019, I really woke up to the climate crisis. I read the book, The Sixth Extinction, which for me was my light bulb moment on, holy shit, if we don't solve climate change, nothing else matters. Then I realized I wanted to spend the rest of my life helping solve climate change. And I chose as my weapon of choice, the weapon of finance, because I believe that money makes the world go round. Money ultimately decides whether we like it or not. We live in a capitalist or by and large a capitalist society. So money has power. And I have a background both as a private equity investor, as a VC investor, and as a FinTech CEO. So. Like the weapon of finance is uniquely suited to my background. So the question I started off with was, 
How does capital really move the needle? How do, how do you really move the needle on climate change with capital? Because what we observed was that at the time, 2020, 2021, trillions of dollars were invested into ESG stocks, right? And not seeing that ESG stock investing is bad, it makes a lot of sense to protect yourself from uh, all kinds of fossil fuel risks by investing in non-fossil fuel type companies, for example. But trading shares of Tesla is going to have very little impact in the real economy, right? Because ultimately you're buying shares from somebody else, so no money is going into the company. And the additionality that you have as an investor is super limited. So our observation was, if you want to move the needle on climate change with capital, you have way more impact investing into the private market, specifically into venture capital, where you're funding breakthrough new innovations, or in growth equity, where you're scaling these innovations. So that was observation number one. Like, if you want to have impact, investing in private markets is way more impact than in public markets. Observation number two was if you look at the capital stack in the world, then there's way more capital sitting with what we call mass affluence and high net worth investors than with the ultra high net worth investors. So if you look globally, people with a net worth between $100,000 and $10 million, there's $177 trillion in net worth which is three times the size of the total institutional asset management market. So that's a huge amount. And on average, less than 1% of that capital is invested in private equity. Why? Because people simply don't have access. So our thesis is if we can lower the barrier, then we can move maybe 10% of that, maybe 15% of that over time to fund actual climate solutions whilst helping people build their personal wealth. Those were the original insights. Okay. So just in case someone is, I don't know, driving or hiking and missed those very important numbers, <laughs> let's revisit the definition of mass affluent. So yes. define again the net worth bounds. $100,000 up to $10 million. Got it. Okay. And, and collectively, that's $177 trillion. Correct. Okay. okay. Correct. But Correct. sounds like funny money. Where, where do all these money, all this money come from? Anyway, so a lot, a lot of capital to place. And again, what what percentage of that goes towards uh, BCPE today? Less than one percent. Got it. Yep. Okay. Whereas versus ultra high net worths invest on average, I believe seventeen to twenty percent of their net worth in private equity, and it just makes a lot of sense. Like below hundred k. Most likely you're still funding your basic, your core life expenses, right? Your house, your children, education, et cetera. I see in the US, those core expenses might be higher for a lot of people, but globally speaking, less than 100K, you're still in what I need near term. But above 100K, this is really where diversification starts to matter, where you start thinking about, you know, what is the... It just makes sense with 10, 15% of your net worth to start investing in higher risk, but also a higher return and much more patient, uh, patient type investments, right? So this is where you can start to afford to put aside, and let's say 10% of your net worth and invest it in long-term climate solutions that are higher risk, but also yield the possibility of generating higher returns. Now, I'm going to go on a bit of a limb here. You can help me out. 
yeah. and decide whether I fall or whether whether I'm stable on this limb. This increasing the percentage allocation to private capital at the extreme, it starts to sound like the endowment model. The, the, the endowment as an LP, their their allocations tend to be Uber, right, focused on on private equities. That is VC hedge fund private equity, et cetera. Is this is this true? Well, we think that up to the limb like the limb is breaking right now. <laughs> <laughs> so I would never recommend anybody to invest 100% in private no, no, equity. No, neither am I. No. Some people do. Actually, I think our managing director has 100% of his net worth invested in private equity. But on average, it makes sense to do that with the money that you can safely set aside. That should be the money that you don't need to touch for the next 10 years is money that you can afford to invest. And the money that typically, the more diversification you have, the less risky an investment is. So the chances of losing your money when you invest in a fund of funds, so Garmin Inc. has these fund of funds where you, with a single investment, you're investing in 150 to 200 companies. The risk of losing your capital there is not very high, but you should invest only with the capital that, one, you can afford to set aside for a long time, and two, can be at risk, right? So it should not be necessarily the money that you need to have I would say with the level of risk diversification, a fund of funds is a pretty safe bet. So we do actually have people investing for their pension or their children's savings plans, et cetera. But you need to be able to afford a level of risk with that capital. Yeah. So just to back up before go- going on to the limb here, the point I was making is we go from the mass affluent, right? Less than 1% in various you know forms of private equity to the high net worth, you know, 20-ish percent. And then the other extreme is, at least in my it kind of experiences the many university endowments could yeah. be like 70 plus percent in private equity structure. So it runs the gamut and those could all be considered like good strategies. Yes. Um, I think the right. point you're making is a great one, which is, Hey, look, if you're, when you invest in private equity, whatever, which, which includes uh, venture, of course, we're talking about like your money is locked up for, I don't know, 10, 12 years, right? Mm. You gotta, you gotta go, go in eyes wide open yeah. Um, but look, most investing should be long-term anyway, decades, not not uh, not any form of, of day trading. Exactly. Totally agree. Yeah. Okay. You, you mentioned another important structure just now, fund of funds. Yeah. Um, so maybe can compare, contrast, right? Fund of funds, risk return versus what I think most folks think about when they think, oh, well, should I be angel investing? Well, yes. How do I buy the deals? And how do I yeah. know how much to invest? And now I'm this many thousands in one freaking company. And I'm always like, please do not do that unless you're a super sophisticated investor. You need like big, large sample size yes. to approximate the main here. So fund to funds, uh, what is it pros cons? Yeah, it's super glad you're asking this question because this is super critical to understand, like the difference between angel investing and fund to funds. So Maybe start with what on earth is a fund of funds. Um, so a fund of funds is basically a basket, a portfolio of funds. So for example, the carbon equity climate tech funds, portfolio fund invests in seven to 10 underlying funds. Every fund invests in 20 to 30 different companies. So investing through such a fund of fund will get you invested into 150 to 200 plus climate technology companies. So what that means is diversification. And what you lack when you're doing angel investing is diversification. So 
angel investing, you basically put all your eggs in one basket versus investing in a fund of funds. You invest in, you put your eggs in 150 to 200 baskets. So the risk profile of investing in a fund of funds is a fraction of the risk of angel investing. Statistically, if you invest in a basket of seven funds, then the risk of getting less than your money's that less than your money capital invested back is 1.5%. So the risk of capital loss is 1.5%. I would say that with angel investing, I don't know the exact statistics, but the risk of capital loss would probably be well over 90%. So that's not to say that you shouldn't angel invest. I like to think of a portfolio approach, which means that you can do some angel investing with, let's say, up to 5% of your liquid net worth. And then typically when you angel invest, invest in things that you personally understand, one, and things that you can add value to as an angel investor. Then by all means, do your angel investments. Then maybe you want to do some direct fund investments if you have enough net worth to be able to do that. And then you probably want to be investing in funds that, again, you have domain expertise and you have network to be able to get into such a fund. For everything else that you don't have expertise or time and resources to do the actual investing direct or fund investing yourself, do it through a fund of funds. For the vast majority of mass affluent and high net worth investors, it just makes a whole lot of sense. So you made me think of a very important thing I need to say right now, which <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll say it again before the podcast starts. In my, my to-be-recorded intro, this is not investment advice, folks. Yes. <laughs> well, Blackland yes. and I both love this space and we both work in finance, but we are not recommending any solution yes. to anyone listening because your all situations are radically unique. Okay. Yes. Agreed. Uh, yeah. Agreed. Double, double underlined exclamation point. That, that stat you just mentioned is what a great contrast, right? And um, the risk of not getting your money back is 1.5% if you're investing in a fund of funds versus picking a single angel investment, right? Likely over 90%, likely over 95%, which, you know, sometimes I have friends who are great entrepreneurs say, oh, I came across this great company. I put in five or six figures of investment into this one company. And I'm just thinking in my heart, like, oh, you should have called me first, right? Like, Invest in them and like 20 others somehow at the same time, uh, because yes. no one is very good at picking winners consistently at these early stages. Yes. One disclaimer to make there, it is, of course, possible to hit it really big, right? It is possible that you invest in the next Tesla or whatever, and you're going to make a thousand X return. In a fund of funds, that will not happen. You're going to get two to three times your money back over the lifetime of the fund. So what I noticed is angel investing has this, it has sex appeal, right? And a fund of funds does not have sex appeal. <laughs> but therefore, I would say, you know, for myself, invest in a small share of your net assets in stuff that has sex appeal, and then invest the majority of your net assets in stuff that has sense. Mm -hmm. Sense or sex appeal. Yes, yes. All right. Let's talk about perhaps the different, some of the examples of either funds or companies that you're, you're able to get these 450 plus investors into. What, what does it look like on the ground? 
So carbon equity investments cover the whole range of the whole climate tech stack. So there are six broad themes that we invest in through these funds. One is agro-food. How do we produce food and, and store food and, and ship food without a carbon footprint? There is mobility, which is beyond electric cars. So think about hydrogen trucks, think about electric aviation, think about cargo ships with wind, for example. Uh, there is the built environment. How do we not only build sustainable buildings, but also how do we lessen our energy use? Heating and cooling, super big themes. There is energy and energy storage. Uh, there's industry, so cement, steel, and chemicals. And then there's carbon capture and storage. So those are the six big themes. And then within those themes, there is a huge breadth of different technologies, all the way from nuclear fusion to plant-based foods. So any kind of solution we need to help solve climate change, any sort of technology solution, it's only technology, is probably within uh, one of the carbon equity funds. Yeah. And how about the like timing here, right? So the, the climate's burning, if you will, right? Uh, it's happening yeah. right now. I love the startup space, clearly, for anyone who listens. I love the finance side. I love the entrepreneurship side. But, you know, sometimes I think, well, how long does it take, right, to go from cool early stage C, A, B, C, whatever, through, you know, like considerable market adoption of the solution, yeah. all that relative to the timeline we have to uh, to kind of get global warming under control. How do you think about that, that, that mismatch there? It's a super good question. So if I look at the carbon equity funds, we cover the whole spectrum from really early stage deep tech innovation that maybe has a timeline to go to market by, I don't know, 2040, 2050 up to growth equity going on bio funds that invest at fund things that we need right now. Mm. So an example, uh, one of the funds that we invested in is Energy Impact Partners. By, uh, their managing partner is Shale Khan, who is really cool and has a very cool podcast as well, The Interchange, and or Catalyst, actually, it's called now. New yeah. podcast, yeah. They fund really early stage and high-risk stuff. So Boston Metal, they electrify steel production. Or in Nutricity, they make uh, carbon-free fertilizers, which is super cool. Or Zap Energy, which is actual nuclear fusion. So, and then on the other side of the spectrum, we have something like ARA Partners, which is an industrial biot fund, and they specialize in funding large-scale industrial infrastructure. So first plant risk, for example, for really scaling up innovations that come out of the lab and that need scale. So we cover the whole spectrum. And I think that's exactly important because we need to primarily invest in stuff that we can, can do right now. So if you look at the whole tech stack of climate solutions, there are climate solutions that are already the technology risk, they don't have technology risk anymore. So think about sun, so uh, solar, wind, for example. Yeah. Those are technologies that have no technology risk and we need to scale them. Second category is technologies where there is much less technology risk. The technology is proven, but there's still what Bill Gates calls a green premium. So there's still, it's more expensive than the current alternative. 
And there you need more funding to get to scale, to lower the economics, to make sure that you get to price parity. And then the third category of technologies are things that don't exist yet or are not yet mature. And this is where you really need early stage venture capital to fund it through their learning curve uh, and to make sure that it gets to market at some point, but it's going to be too late for 2030 objectives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good breakdown of those of those options. And maybe our partners is one example, but how often do you think the Ural's capital funds projects versus like like project versus corporate investment? Great points. Are you asking how much money comes from corporates for these type of uh, projects? Yeah, slightly different. And maybe the answer is more obvious if there's a focus on, on VC, let's say, but you know, there's there's kind of corporate either early stage venture or growth venture. And then eventually some of those things become project finance, become infrastructure. My guess is that most of your capital is is towards the former, not towards the infrastructure, the project finance. I mean, RS seems across the chasm. Is that right or wrong? Yes, that's correct. So Carmenecti at the moment primarily focuses on technology uh, funds. So funds that are really investing in venture capital, private equity. Some funds are crossover. So what we're also starting to see is more blended finance type funds where they have both project finance and growth equity. And Carbon Equity at some point might add infrastructure type funds. So we can also do more project type finance because we need, I think, 9 trillion in total per year of climate finance. I think I'm not sure exactly what their latest numbers are by McKinsey, but the vast majority of that is project finance and infrastructure funding to really fund the rollout of everything we need. Renewable energy infrastructure, uh, EV infrastructure, uh, plants uh, for green steel, etc. So yep. we definitely need a ton of funding there too. Okay, so let's flash forward, I don't know, five years, Jacqueline. You just kind of hinted at this just now that you could have separate funds for infrastructure Five years from now, what does carbon equity look like? Well, hopefully we hit the 1 billion mark. That's definitely our target. Hopefully we are the global go-to impact venture capital and private equity fund investing platform. And I'm saying impact because ultimately I think we will go beyond pure climate and add potentially other impact investment themes such as biodiversity, water, circularity, and maybe down the line, even financial inclusion, ethical AI. So I think the core of what carbon equity's value proposition is, is what I call money as a means, right? So money as a means to help solve global challenges versus money as a pure goal in itself, right? To buy a bigger house or a flashy car, right? So money as a means is really at the core of our value proposition. So the vision I have in my head is that and sometime down the line, people get onto the platform and can say, what are the themes that I care about? How much risk, return, and impact you know, am I am I willing to to take on? And, and that people can create a portfolio of different impact themes to help solve the global challenges they care about. Yeah, I mean once you once you get the attention of the high net worth and mass affluent for doing more with their money. You have their mind share, I mean, kind of their wallet share, but in a good way, and the technology, right, to do it, uh, the relationships to do it. Why not go 
go broad, go horizontal, right? Exactly. And one of the underlying reasons is that I personally also am starting to understand climate change increasingly as a systemic issue and not purely a climate technology issue. You know, we're not going to solve this problem purely with technology. So it's also a social problem, right? And then all of the problems that come from climate change, such as migration, food scarcity, inequality, all of these things are also things that we can help tackle. So that's why I think it makes sense to ultimately broaden our mandates. Hey, it's Chris. Just a brief message from our sponsors and we'll get back to the show. (laughs) Just kidding, we don't take sponsors. On the other hand, I do have the privilege of leading the only executive peer group community for growth stage CEOs, founders, and investors fighting climate change. With monthly group meetings, annual retreats, and one-on-one executive coaching calls, our members help each other boost revenue, impact, capital raised, clarity, confidence, work-life balance, and team effectiveness. Today's 30-plus members represent over $8 billion in market cap or assets under management for climate solutions. If you're interested, go to entrepreneursforimpact.com and join the waiting list today. All right, back to the show. I want to move us from carbon equity over to Jacqueline. So maybe tell us one or two things Jacqueline, that you strongly believe in. And those can be in business, but ideally they're broader than business. What comes to mind? Well, I think the thing I uniquely believe in is exactly that concept of money as a means. Like I I think that's interesting because I think looking at my gener- the generation of my parents, you know, people really grew up with money as a goal in itself and money was status and money was power. And I think as a result of that, a lot of people became disenchanted with money and a lot of, especially women, you know, have totally disassociated with money. They don't care about investing. They're not interested by it. But when we start to recognize the power that money has, the ability to affect change, the ability to vote with your dollars, I think it really changes the way that we think about money. And for me, that builds a much more emotional connection with capital, right? I don't care about money. (laughs) I, I really don't, for myself, have a dream to be super rich or live in a in a massive mansion, I simply don't care. But if I can affect the level of change whilst myself being comfortable, good enough, right? Good enough for me, then and if more people start to think like that, I think that could be a, a bit of a there could be a big shift, right? And 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 I think there could be a groundswell of momentum for that kind of thinking amongst millennial type investors who I think that's a much broader felt, you know, needs to have purpose with your capital. So that's something I perhaps uniquely believe in. Well, it's true. And, you know, that we're in the process, at least by kind of U.S. definitions of certain generations, right? This process of the biggest wealth transfer uh, in history of some, I forget the number, I think it's like $60 trillion passing from baby boomers to uh, to their kids. And you mentioned women's kind of interest or lack therein in investing, but I believe that data shows that more women than men will inherit that 
I'm, I'm digging deep in the past here, but $60 trillion of wealth being transferred. So you're right. You're right. Greater alignment with uh, the kind of investing we're discussing on this phone call certainly bodes well for money as a means. Money is a tool, right? Because what, when you were talking about the power of capital earlier on, the phrase, the golden rule came to mind and not the golden rule from religion, but the golden rule that, you know, she with the gold rules. Yes. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> as this wealth transfer occurs and more folks who care about, you know, yes, earning for their retirement, et cetera, but also doing well with that capital, the future can look can look a little more hopeful. Absolutely. Jacqueline, um, if you could chat with your younger self, what's some advice you would give her to be more effective, happier, et cetera, on this pursuit? I would like to have second-guessed myself less. I took a very long time to become the entrepreneur that I always thought I wanted to be. So I've been swerving around it. I had a, I've always had this drive and this dream to become an entrepreneur. And I did many things in that direction. As a student, I founded my uh, the largest nonprofit student-run strategy consulting firm of the Netherlands, which is which is big, but it's a nonprofit type company. So it didn't, for me, it didn't fully count as entrepreneurship. It then, counted <laughs> <laughs> Yes. And then I worked with Rocket Internet, uh, which is uh, was one of the largest European sort of venture builders. And I founded their online real estate platform in Southeast Asia. But I wasn't taking the entrepreneurial risk there myself. Then I led a large fintech uh, company. And after all those years, after like 12 years of experience, I still was not sure that I could be an entrepreneur. And people in my environment actually also doubted me. A family member said, well, you shouldn't think that, you know, just because you're a CEO in the Philippines, you could be a CEO in the Netherlands. Nice. If a partner at a fund said, I'm not sure that you could be an entrepreneur because I'm not so sure that you could cross the chat, you know, basically get through the product market fit phase. I'm not sure if you have the patience. Mm. Now, when I look back on all the things that I've been building since a young age, I think Oh, yes, I can. <laughs> like, oh, why have I been second-guessing myself? And maybe it's just something that's very innately female, that we doubt whether the thing, whether we can do things that obviously we can do no less well than anybody else would. So I would have liked to trust my capabilities and my instincts a little bit more growing up so that I would have sooner acted on this dream of truly becoming an entrepreneur. Well, yeah, I, I love you sharing that. I don't like the feedback you the feedback you got along the way. You mentioned the link between that feedback and you as a woman. I mean, maybe part of it too is how the the prevalence of women entrepreneurs, women CEOs. So like seeing yourself in those other other people probably yeah. didn't boost your confidence. No. It's funny that one person said you lack the patience to find product market fit. I mean, no. entrepreneurs are notoriously impatient. Yes. Right? I mean, it's like almost if someone calls you impatient, it's like, yeah. oh, thank you, right? Yes, well, yes, that's totally that's true. true. <laughs> I, uh, I've, I've joked once on the podcast before, but one of my early reviews in private equity, like a you know, with my managing director, was like, yeah, like you're you're kind of a self starter to a fault, and I was like, wait. Am I being criticized or complimented right now? I'm going to take the ladder. I'm going to take the ladder. Yeah, that's such a good point. It's totally true, Chris. If you had to pick 
some books or podcast tools, quotes that listeners would find value in on their own entrepreneurial journey? What comes to mind? Quotes, this too shall pass. If I were to tattoo something on my body, which I don't have yet, but I like the quote, this too shall pass, because it reminds us of when things are good, enjoy them because this too shall pass. And when things are bad, don't worry about it. You'll 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 get through. As long as you keep on walking, you'll make it out. So for me, it's a good reminder that there are ups and downs, and but you will get to the other side. Uh, but also enjoy what is worth enjoying whilst it lasts. Yeah, I think what I like is that you started by interpreting that in the direction no one thought. Right? Like usually we hear this too shall pass. It's like oh well, shit sucks right now. Oh, it's okay. This this too shall pass. But it's also the the reverse, right? When things are awesome, it's like, hang on, yeah. Boy Scout, Girl Scout, like this is also temporary, right? Yes, very much. And in entrepreneurship, that's very important, right? Because some days are great. And uh, you know, some th- some days everything is going perfect, or some months things are perfect. But I already know that hard times will for sure come around. I mean, you cannot build a business without having any setbacks. So like enjoying the momentum and enjoying the self-confidence, that feeling of traction whilst it's there, knowing it will disappear at some point and there will be challenges. So yes, very much. All right. So I stopped you from maybe going to a book perhaps. Yeah, for me, Dare to Lead by Brene Brown, extremely valuable book, uh, being a CEO. I think the core lesson there is about vulnerability. And what I learned from Brene Brown is that you can truly connect with people by being more personally vulnerable. Yeah, well, I think when when we revved up for the podcast, I said, I asked you like I asked all my guests, well, like, what would make this a success? And part of your answer was, let's have a real conversation, right? Yes. Was, well, we, we can do that. Yes. Yeah, sign me up. That sounds great. Tell us some habits or routines that keep you healthy, sane, and focused. For me, the past year, I've been waking up at 5 a.m., which is uh, really helpful. Uh, so initially, it was a bit painful to wake up at 5 a.m., especially in the Dutch winter, which is really cold and dark. But it gives me focus time. So when I wake up at 5 a.m., I spend like 15 minutes doing some fitness. And then I work until 7 a.m. when I have coffee with my wife. So that's like a one and a half hours of focus time every single day where I do the most important thing, the thing that's going to move the needle most. And I don't know if if that's recognizable for, for other CEOs, but like my days are just jam-packed. Like I spend uh, nine to six or nine to seven or nine to eight just full-time in meetings. And maybe if I have a 30-minute break in between, I'm lucky. There's no way you can get anything done. And then when I'm done, I have 100 to 150 emails per day. So I'm just drowning and just trying to keep afloat. Mm. But this... 5 to 7 a.m., make sure that I have some time and actually can feel good about myself, what I achieve, and every day move the needle by a little. Well, again, keeping it real, Jacqueline, like, oh, CEO, hooray. Also, it's a damn hard job, right? Yeah, I think what you're describing fits in the bucket of, of deep work, right? 
That's um, deep work, totally. Longer periods of time, not not 15 minutes here, 30 minutes there, you know, hour and a half or longer uh, chunks of no distractions. Exactly. Well, hey, look, uh, we're at time. I'm sure you're back to back here. What's a final uh, a final message or ask from listeners here, Jacqueline? Yeah. Well, given that I have the opportunity to address your listeners, <laughs> if you are interested in what we're building with Carbon Equity, we're always looking for talents, uh, advisors, people to join us on our journey. So I'd love to get in touch. Just touch base with me through LinkedIn. Know that I am a horrible responder. I My LinkedIn inbox is overflowing, but I will try to get to it. And do feel free to follow up if you don't hear from me. Be persistent um, because I'm not intentionally ignoring you. Uh, but I'd love to hear from you and uh, see if you know there are ways to collaborate uh, down the line in uh, building carbon equity as the global go-to impact venture capital and private equity fund investing platform. There it is, folks. Jacqueline, we are rooting for your all success. Cool to see what's happened in less than two years. Can't imagine the trajectory for the next, uh, the next five. Talk soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And if you want more intel on climate tech, better habits, and deep work, then join the thousands of others who subscribe to our Substack newsletter at entrepreneursforimpact.com. Or drop me a note on LinkedIn. All right, that's all, y'all. Take care.